Good to see each one of you today, and uh, I want to just put this thought in your mind as we start. Your faith will never grow beyond your confession. I want you to think about that. Your faith will never grow beyond your confession. What are you believing? What are you asking God to do in your life? I can promise you this, that God is not going to go beyond what you say. And sometimes what we do is we pull back a little bit because we're afraid, well, what if I ask God for too much? Do you ever think that maybe God, and understand how I say this, is insulted by the smallness of our ask? Because he says, well, maybe that's how big you think I am. Maybe God is a lot bigger than that. Amen? Well, let me just talk to you a little bit about miracles today. You know, we were, uh, we were in a convention uh, in Singapore that consisted of 1,500 couples from every faith. We weren't allowed to use the Word of God. We weren't allowed to talk about God or Jesus in that because it was a government-sponsored con- convention. But we were able to take scriptures and use them and just pull the reference off and make it seem like it was a great proverb, a great teaching. And I got to tell you that the Spirit of God was all over what we did. It was amazing how people were just attracted to our message and to us just to talk to us and interact. And afterwards, we would get to share a little bit about our faith and kind of what God was up to. And I just really, really just thank God for that opportunity we had. And in a way, it was a miracle. It really was a miracle. If you stop and think about it, people wanted to be in that marriage convention so bad, even though it was sold out, they were waiting outside to see if there was some way they would let them in. And I stood back and I thought, you know, God, you have given us all these different spheres of influence and opportunity, and we should seize them for the kingdom of God. Got me thinking about miracles. Let me talk to you first about miracles that multiply in our life. Miracles that multiply, and that is when we, when we see God do something in our life, what's the first thing we do? We tell other people. And when we tell other people, they begin to think, well, yeah, I wonder if God could do that in my life. I wonder if the effect of that could have an ongoing kind of effect in someone else's life if I just allow the miracles of my own life to start to multiply in the life of others. And that's why it's important just to talk about what God is doing in your life and tell people. You may say, well, it seems like a small miracle. Hey, no miracle is a small miracle. Amen? If you ever notice how somebody says, well, it's really not that big a deal, but let me just tell you, almost kind of discounting what has happened in your life. The other thing about miracles, miracles have a legacy effect. You know, when I, when I begin to invest in faith in God and God begins to do something, it's not just me that's affected. It's my children and my children's children. It's generations to come. They look back and they say, wow, you know, God did something back there. And and all of those miracles are really just a step of faith. It's a choice that we make. We make a choice to say, I want to see what God can do. And I'm going to believe God. And then miracles can trigger, really, miracles can trigger your memory. You know, when I walk in this building, and I think that it was just two years ago that we started this church, Every wall is a miracle. Every light is a miracle. Every chair is a miracle. I can so remember being in that theater and people walking up and say, how much does a chair cost? Can I buy one chair? 
Yes, you can. What you're sitting on is a miracle. Because somebody took out of their heart and said, you know what? I'm going to take this extra money that I have, or maybe it's not even extra. I'm going to take this money that I have, and I'm going to give it for something. I want the kingdom to somehow benefit from this. So I want to just encourage you, when you walk in this building, I want you to realize that you're sitting in and you're walking in a miracle of God. Because by human standards, we really shouldn't be in the place that we are in the short time that we've been here. Now I want to take you to a miracle in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 15, and I'm going to ask you to look with me, actually beginning in verse 29. We're going to back up a little bit from what we originally set out to do because I want you to see the context of what's happening. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there when Jesus walked on the earth? And those crowds that would run along and shout and yell and people that, that were sick and people that needed to be healed and people were carrying them and they were carrying them on their back and they were just wanting to get close to this healer, this Jesus. And it must have been a, a magical time for everyone there. I always think about the one that wasn't fast enough to catch up with Jesus. I always think about the one that didn't get noticed because somehow he wasn't at the right place at the right time. And in his heart, he probably said, if only I could get close to Jesus. You know, when Jesus told his disciples in John's gospel that he was going to be going away and they were very sad and they wanted to hold on to him and keep him from leaving, he said, no, it's important that I go away because if I don't go away, I can't send the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. And when he comes, he will be with you and he will be in you. And he wanted them to realize that they could do great things, that Jesus could be close to every one of them, regardless where they were and who they were. They didn't have to be in the in crowd. They had, didn't have to be close to Jesus in the physical sense. They could be close to Jesus all the time. That every day is a day that God wants to work a miracle in your life and in my life. Well, let's look at the story in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 29. It says, Jesus departed from there and skirted the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And great multitudes came, having with him the lame and the blind, the mute, the maimed, and others. And they laid them at Jesus' feet and he healed them. Can you imagine that scene? Just imagine that scene. The word is spread. There's hope for my brother. There's hope for my sister. There's hope for my mom. There's hope for me. And here's this great multitude that come, and they just start bringing them to Jesus. And he's sitting there, and he's teaching them, and he's healing them. And go on with me, and look what it says in verse 31. The multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Right there we have a little, little hint about who the crowd is. Because when it says they glorified the God of Israel, it's telling us this was a Gentile crowd. This is the feeding of the 4,000. You may remember the feeding of the 5,000. It's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 6. That was a Jewish crowd. And here it is, a Gentile crowd. And you notice in the Scripture we're going to read that it were 4,000 men assembled. That means there had to be about 12,000 people there because there's always more women at church than men, amen? <laughs> and so 4,000 are assembled. They're hearing this message. They're seeing lives change before their very eyes. And it's something, it does something to you when you see miracles like that, when you see lives change like that. Now go with me to verse 32. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself. He said, I have compassion on the multitudes, 
because they have now continued with me for three days and have had nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint in the way. Now, you know what I see here? This is the primer for the miracle. Whenever Jesus calls attention to a problem, he's getting ready to work a miracle. Can I say that to you? If there is a, in your life right now a problem, if there's some kind of a setback, some kind of struggle, it's a setup for a miracle. God's getting ready to do something in your life. You've got to let God do work and see what God can do in that situation. So it tells us here in verse 33, so his disciples said to him, where will we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Now I want you to take your, your Bible and if you're taking notes, I want you just to take that little phrase right there in verse 30, 33 where it says, where w- could we get enough food in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? You know what they're doing? They're quoting from Psalm 78. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. But Psalm 78 is actually pointing out the littleness of the faith of Israel who didn't believe God could supply their need in the wilderness. So what we're going to see here in verse 34, Jesus said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few fish. Now already you're doing the math and you're thinking, okay, nobody's going to get very much. We're going to get down to a crumb. There won't be much here. Have you ever looked in your your checking account? Have you ever looked in your life and say, you know, there's just not enough? And you're trying to do the math every way you can. You're trying to cut everything you can out of your life to try to figure out how do we make this happen? How do we turn this all around? And when everything's done, you do, well, I guess we could pray. You ever done that? Well, has it come to that? We've got to go to God here, and we've got to see what God can do. What would happen if we would start with God? What would happen if we would say, you know, your word says in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 through 11 that if you just believe, if you just put your faith in that, and I was reading that passage about seek and you shall knock and, you know, and, and, and all those great passages that, that we find about faith, Matthew 7, 11, and I thought, you know, it's kind of like 7, 11. You know, 7-Eleven's always open. You know, it's open 24 hours a day. It used to, it's called 7-Eleven, for those of you who don't know, because it used to only be open from 7 to 11. And then they went 24 hours, and so you can go there anytime you want, which I never could understand why they even put locks on the doors if they're open 24 hours a day. But I want you to think about God like that. God, 7-Eleven, in, de- in fact, 24 hours a day, God is there for you, ready to answer your prayers. Jesus said unto them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few little fish. He sat down, so he commanded the multitude to sit down. That's the step of faith. You see, that's you saying, you know what, God's going to do something, and I'm just going to sit down right here and wait for him to come through. So he sat him, sat down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. Now, what's he giving thanks for? You can imagine this, seven loaves, 4,000 men. There's got to be a miracle coming here somewhere. I'm, can you imagine being one of the disciples? They're, they're probably thinking, you know, this guy's done some really great stuff, but right now, I'm not sure. Maybe he's losing it. There's seven loaves. You know what that is? You know what your seven loaves are? It's what you're looking at and saying there's not enough. It's what you look at and say, I don't believe God can work through this. I don't even think God could work this kind of a miracle. 
Because we don't have enough. How can we sit down and break what we have and give thankful? And you know, the disciples, that's all they had. And he's saying, give it all. I want all the, all the bread you have, all the fish you want. I need it now. Well, they're hungry too. They're probably saying, we've been working, following you around this Palestinian hillside for all these years, and now you want to take our last seven loaves of bread and, and few fish? Are you kidding me? Think like a disciple for a moment. What are they seeing and what are they knowing? They're probably saying, you know, he's, I'm sure he's got another miracle here, but I don't know how this one's really going to work. And it says here, in verse 37, so they all ate and were filled. They took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. And now those who ate were filled men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude. They got into the boat and he came to the region of Magdala. Now it doesn't say how all this happened. It just says he broke the bread. And when it was all done, they had seven baskets full of food left. And then he puts something in the end of this verse 39 that's interesting. You'll read over it every time. It says here, and they came to the region of Magdala. What's significant about Magdala? There was a woman there by the name of Mary. She was from that place. When God puts a word in his word, it's for a purpose. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 6 says, every word of God is pure. In other words, every word of God is significant. It's not talking about the whole Bible here, though it is pure. He's talking about every word that God writes, he has a reason for it. Why would he put in there, I'm going down to the region of Magdala? We're going to find out in a few moments. But I want you to see this, that earth is empty unless heaven opens its doors. Hold on to that thought. Earth is empty unless heaven opens its doors. This is a pattern you see throughout Scripture. When God created the heavens and the earth, what did he do? He opened up the windows, if you will, or the doors of heaven, and he began this creation process, and everything he did for six days, he got done with it, and he said, and it's good. What he did was he brought all that he could think of, all that he could imagine for earth, and he up opened up the doors of heaven and he brought it down here to earth. He began to do something like he's done all along. God always has this wonderful way of opening up heaven and bringing us down to earth. Now, let me, I told you I was going to bring you back to that thing about Magnola. If you'll go with me, look with me in, in Luke chapter 8. Just turn in your Bibles, Luke chapter 8 and beginning in verse 1. A lot of people wonder, how did Jesus fund his ministry? How did Jesus fund his ministry? Because he, he seems to tell his disciples, you know, he does have Judas there, and Judas is the keeper of the money. But nobody ever seems to be working. They just seem to be traveling around the countryside preaching. He told us that when he sent out the seven, he says, go there, and if they receive you, then they've reaped a prophet's reward. In other words, if they'll take care of you and feed you, it'll be a good thing. And really, you've got three years, and you've got 12 guys who are unemployed. Right? I mean, have you ever just stopped to think about this picture? These are 12 guys wandering around, preaching, teaching, seeing miracles happen day after day after day, and yet they're not working a steady job. But somehow, 
they're able to function, they're able to thrive in that situation? Well, I'm going to give you at least one of the answers to that question. In beginning in chapter 8 and verse 1, it came to pass that he went through the city and the village preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were there with him. Now look at what happens in verse 2. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene. You see, Mary was from Magdala. Jesus included that whole section there as he was talking about the miracles of the multiplication of the bread. He included Magdalene there because he wanted to tie you back to this position because he wanted you to see how God works. When God works, God doesn't just open up the windows and start throwing money to earth. We would love that, wouldn't he? You know, we'd all be living outside all the time. But God, ha- God works through people. And God begins to work in amazing ways. So in Magdala, he found this woman named Mary. Mary was possessed of seven demons. Mary was not the most righteous person in the town. Far from it. We don't know how these demons came to possess Mary. Undoubtedly, she was involved in all kinds of of illicit behavior. Undoubtedly, she was opening her heart up to evil spirits, and they were influencing her, and they they were taking control of her physically and mentally and spiritually. And when Jesus encountered her, he recognized the evil spirits and cast these demons out of her, and she was set free. And her heart was filled with such gratitude at being delivered from the sin in her life. You see, that's why we should be grateful people in all things, because we have been delivered from sin in our life. We've been set free for the kingdom of God. We've left the kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of light. And Mary was like that. And Mary was one of these women that were traveling along with the disciples. And we don't know how this whole thing worked. They were following along. Maybe they were helping. Maybe they were cooking. Maybe they were serving. Maybe they were setting things up. We don't know what all they were doing. But look at what it says in verse 3. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. Herod, King Herod's steward. How did that happen? How did she come to find Christ? You see, Christ had made his way into the palace as well on the wayside. And and Herod's steward there found Christ and said, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ as well. And Susanna and many others who, notice this ladies, just underline it in your Bible, provided for him from their substance. These were a group of wealthy women who traveled in the ministry of Jesus, and out of their great wealth, they fueled the ministry for the kingdom of God in that time. We told you we were in Singapore, and this is a name that uh, you may not instantly recognize. If you do a little Google search, you'll find out uh, more about this woman named Olivia Lum. Olivia Lum was raised as an orphan in Malaysia. Never knew her mother, her father, She kind of made her way around different relatives, finally ending up in her grandmother's house. Her grandmother sent her out to start working, weaving baskets when she was nine years old. She would make the equivalent of about a nickel a day. She'd accumulate a little bit of money, and before long, you know, the grandmother found the money, and she took it away and gambled with it and lost all of it. 
But little Olivia kept working and kept saving and kept striving away in that, in that God-forsaken environment she was in as a nine-year-old little girl. She kept a diary every day, and in her diary she wrote this. If you are the true God, please come and look for me so that I may come to know you. She kept working, she kept saving, and finally she got an opportunity to go to Singapore and go to a high school in Singapore. When she arrived in Singapore, she only had $10 to her name. But with that $10, she began to study hard and work hard and finally made her way into a university in Singapore. In that university, she graduated with honors and with a degree in chemistry. She always dreamed of having her own business, and so in 1989, she started a little business. It was recycling water. And as she was learning how to do this and putting all that she had learned in her chemistry classes into practice, that little company began to grow, began to get noticed. The government then offered a tender to, to any company that could recycle water, and she applied for that and won the tender and began to build her business a little bit bigger. In 2000, she came into a church in Singapore and she found Jesus Christ. And she began to realize that God was in all of this. And she made this statement, anything is possible for those who believe God and have a confident expectation of good. Now, you know, we've got all kinds of excuses why things aren't working for us. We can blame somebody else. We can say we didn't have the opportunity. But how do you compare yourself to a little orphan girl raised in, at five years old, an orphan, and only, and, and, and gambling, her grandmother gambling away what she had and, and making all these movements? But in 2000, she received Christ. Her little company, known high, as High Flux, which recycles water, was then became a public offering. It was an IPO on the Singapore Stock Exchange. That little company began to grow, and in 2011, she was awarded the Ernst & Young World Entrepreneur of the Year Award in Monte Carlo. In her speech, she said, and she's the first woman that was ever given that honor, in her speech, she said, I would not be here today except for Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. Now, if that isn't a miracle, I don't know what it is. She went from poverty in Malaysia to a billion-dollar company. Her net worth today is over $500 million personally. When I read that story and I thought about being in that environment and I thought about the poverty that's throughout Asia like that, I thought to myself, we have no excuse but she attributes it all to God, and she's taken what she has now in, in, in great quantity, undoubtedly, and she's invested it in her church, and she's seen God do some great things, and she continues to be a strong witness. And, and if you want to read more of her story, just go on Wikipedia and Google her name. It's an amazing, amazing story of what God can do. You see, she learned how to ask God for some big things. It seemed like the impossible in a little grass hut in Malaysia. Asking God to do something big in her life. Asking God, first of all, just to show up in her life. I think we've been paralyzed by thinking like the world thinks and not like God thinks. Have you ever thought about what God thinks? Here's what God thinks. All things are possible. God spends his time thinking about all things are possible. 
We spend our time thinking about what's not possible, why it won't work, why it can't happen. When my boys were young, they always used to tell me, I'd ask them to do something, they said, we can't do that, Dad. And I said, well, what can you do? Just tell me what you can do then. I don't want to hear any more what you can't do. What can you do? Well, I can do this. I said, okay, go do that. They come back and we, we did that. That wasn't so bad. Well, what can you do next? Well, I can't. No, you can do it. You go do that. You go do that. We were talking to somebody the other day and we said, you know, they were asking us about our children when, in, when we were in Singapore. And we said, well, you know, our, our oldest son is with U.S. Bank Corp. He never graduated from college. He got too busy in the banking business and never got time to get through it, even though they offered to pay for his college education. He now, he's now number four reporting to the president, CEO of U.S. Bank Corp. He personally oversees about a trillion dollars worth of money. Not bad for a, not, a college dropout. Our other son, Josh, you heard him preach last week. He's launched two software companies. Not bad. Our daughter's an executive over the whole state of Colorado for, the, for recall. And I look at that and I say, why did that happen? You know what it was? It was because we believed they could do that. That's all. It wasn't because I had all this great wisdom to pour into them. I didn't have all this banking wisdom. I had none. Didn't have any software information. Had none. We believed they could do that. And we pushed them. We said, we pushed them. You know what God is saying to you right now? I believe, Influence Church, you can do this. He's looking at every one of you. I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. Why don't you believe in yourself? Why don't you take me at my word and believe when I say all things are possible to those who believe? Take me at my word. And we're telling God what we can't do. He says, what can you do? Go do that. Give up the excuses. Give up all the explanations and just believe God. We insult God when we ask God only for the small things in life. We need to compliment God and say, God, you're a great God. You're a good God. I trust you, God, even when I don't know how it's going to happen. We need to acknowledge his power. You are all powerful. There's nothing that limits you, God. Do you believe God can do anything? Then trust him. Trust him. Believe that God is a good God. Satan would come along and he'd try to tell you God is not a good God. You can't trust God. can't depend on God. Oh, we need to think like God. God operates from the overflow. Have you ever noticed when God does miracles, he always does more than they expect? Okay, we're gonna feed 4,000. Oh, we've got seven baskets left over. God is the God of the overflow, right? The disciples are in that little boat. They're scared. The wind's blowing around, and, they go, and they're frightened. These guys are frightened, and they go, hey, Jesus, um, you know, the storm and the wind, you know, we're afraid we're gonna capsize here. And he speaks to the storm and the wind, and it calms down. And then it says they were very afraid. They were afraid of the storm. When, when God's in your boat, you get very afraid. What's going on? God does abundantly above all we could ask or think. John chapter 10. We have to realize that God operates in this overflow, and heaven gets crowded with blessings that aren't released. Have you ever thought about it like that? God's going, I got, I got all these blessings here. It's piling up. We've got a warehouse full of blessings. And so he says to his disciples, when they say, how do we pray? Would you pray like this? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you move some of this inventory out? 
Would you get it down on earth where it belongs, where people can enjoy it, where the people I love can, 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 can enjoy the, the goodness of my hand and the goodness of my favor? A little different perspective on it, isn't it? We need to release, release those things and unlock the blessings of God. You know, during the miracle campaign, we're throwing our faith on the line. We're saying, God, we want you to do something beyond what we could imagine. And I promise you, human Phil doesn't have a day in a week where he doesn't go, how is all this going to work, God? And then, then spiritual Phil goes, now, Phil, you got to straighten up. you got to practice what you preach. You talk about faith. I know, I know, but you know, it's, sometimes it's hard. I mean, I'm just kind of looking at everything in the big picture, and he goes, quit looking at the big picture and look at God. I got it mixed up. Quit looking at the big picture and look at God. <laughs> so what happens when you got multiple personalities going on up here? You just go, which guy was talking? I'm not sure. See, we got to listen to the right voice. You ever listen to the wrong voice? I was talking to one of our church families. I, we did a wedding uh, in Palm Desert. If you notice, our cross is gone. It's, it's down at the wedding. They wanted to borrow it for the wedding. We had it on the 18th green down there at the PGA West uh, uh, golf uh, course. On the, and, and the cross was sitting right there on the green. I'm thinking, I love this. Our cross is on the green, right? Then they moved it in, and it's right in front of the dance floor. I'm thinking, I'm loving it. Everybody's got to dance in front of the cross. <laughs> but one of the couples was saying, uh, you know, uh, that we were down there with, they said, you know, uh, right now, boy, it's a big struggle for my eighth grader. I said, eighth grade is the worst year. When I was a seventh grader, I was nice. When I was a ninth grader, I was normal. I don't know what happened in eighth grade. I met John Stevens. John Stevens was the worst influence in my life. I believed everything he said and nothing anybody else said. I was in trouble all the time in eighth grade. I know they were already lining me up for the post office and not to pastor it. <laughs> I don't know what happens there. You know, but you know what? You, you just kind of work through it and God comes through. But uh, during the miracle, I mean, we're throwing our faith on the line. We believe God loves to see he loves it when his children push, if you will, that, that envelope or go beyond the limit of what is normal and natural and say, why not? Why not? You know, I, have you ever thought of how the Bible starts with God and man? He says, okay, I'm going to create this whole deal, and Adam, you're going to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air. Speaking of the fowl of the air, you should have seen the duck I ate in Singapore. <laughs> Wasn't right. I walked into the store. There it is, hanging by its neck. Oh, poor duck, I'm telling you, look at that thing, you know. They thought it was, they were showing it off. I hide it, put it under the counter, I don't know what's going on there. I don't even know where I got off on that one, but I got to keep moving here. <laughs> that image, I just go to bed with that duck in my head. I just, Tammy took a picture of it, you'll have to see it. But, but God loves it when we push beyond the limit of what is normal and natural and say, let's see what God can do. We unlock the blessings and we act in faith. Let me take you to another passage. Let's go over to, to John chapter 6, if you will. This is a, uh, a really cool passage that ties in with the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, but he gives us some information here that's really good. 
Then Jesus said to them, verse 32, Most assuredly I say unto you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now notice that, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, the bread of God, is he who comes down from heaven. Who's the bread of God? Jesus. Jesus is the bread of God. He comes down from heaven, and he gives life to the world. And they said unto him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me should never thirst. So Jesus is called here the true bread from heaven. He's called the bread of God. In the Old Testament, you know, they had in the tabernacle, they had what was called the table of showbread, and they would put that manna on this little uh, plate, and it was called the table of showbread. You know what that literally means in the Hebrew? It means the, the bread of God's face. Or the bread of God's presence. The idea was when you looked into the bread, the manna, you saw the face of God. It was a revelation of what God was doing to bring the bread of God to earth, Jesus. He was giving a picture in the Old Testament, a type. You want to know what God's like? God is like manna. And he told those disciples, he told those Israelites, he said, take only the manna for the day. It is the face of God for the day. You can't store up yesterday's blessings. You have to have a fresh encounter with God every day. The bread of God's presence right there. He's called the bread of life. Remember I told you earlier that that they were quoting from Psalm 78. Let me take you to Psalm 78, verses 18 and 19, and show you how little faith they had in that miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. It says there they tested God in their heart. It goes on to say they spoke against God. Have you ever spoken against God? Let me tell you, speak against God when you don't speak faith. Because you don't think God can do it. But look what it says. And they said, Psalm 78, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? An exact quote from Matthew chapter 15 and verse 23. Can God take my wilderness? Can God take my bad situation? Can God take my hopelessness? Can he feed me here? Can he do something for me here? Psalm 78, verses 22 through 24 says this, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation, yet, look at this, even the middle of your little faith, look what it says, yet he had commanded the clouds above, they opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down manna on them and given them the bread of heaven. You know what God said? Even when you don't believe, I'm going to bless you. But if you want to really see my blessing, start trusting me, start believing me, see what I can do. You know, there was a belief that, that the, when the temple was destroyed, there was a belief that the manna that had been preserved from the wilderness, that that manna was kept in a golden pot and hidden away. It was hidden away by Jeremiah the prophet, and it would be produced again one day, When the Messiah came, 
Now watch this. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. Write this reference down. When you tile this together, it gets really amazing. If we had a couple of hours, we could really drill down into this. It tells us in Revelation 2.17, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Do you know God has hidden manna? It's not for everybody. It's for some to eat. You see, sometimes we overlook who we are in Christ. There's a little phrase that appears several times in the New Testament. It's called, spent all they had. That sound like your testimony? Spent all they had. There was a woman with an issue of blood, and it says she spent all that she had to try to get well. But it didn't do any good until she found Jesus and touched the hem of his garment. Then there was a prodigal son. It said he spent all he had in riotous living in the far country. Let me just read what it says from Luke 15. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough? You see what came to him? When he spent all he had, he said, my father has bread enough to spare, and I perish in hunger. We're like prodigals. The father has all the bread you need. God has everything you need. He has it in surplus. It's stored up in heaven. He's waiting to transfer ownership, if you will, from heaven to earth. He's got plenty to spare, but I perish in this hunger. And God's saying to us, children, realize who you are. You are a child of the living God. You don't have to perish. You don't have to go without. God wants to supply your needs according to his riches and glory. Here's a few life applications. Here's the first one. Use what you have to initiate a miracle. Use what you have to initiate a miracle. You say, well, I don't have much. Use what you have to initiate a miracle. Well, I don't know if I can afford it. Use what you have to initiate a miracle. Well, what if it doesn't work? Use what you have to initiate a miracle. Well, I don't know how it's all going to work. Use what you have to initiate a miracle. The disciples gave all that they had. They had seven loaves and a few fish. They gave all they had. You know what happened? Miracles follow action. Miracles don't follow inaction. Miracles just show up at your door. God, I'm going to do this. God says, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to trust you. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. We had a man that volunteered. He came up and he said, you know, I'm out of work. He did a lot of the construction on this building. He said, I'm out of work, and I don't know what else to do. I'm going to volunteer my time. I'm going to seed in work that I might get work. He came up here, and he started working for free. And before long, God gave him a job. He's still working now. He's working. He'll tell you today, if I had him give a testimony today, he would say, you know what? I believe because I sowed what I needed, I got what God could give me. What is it you need? So back into God and see what God can do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about the miracles that are operating in our midst right now, Father, in every life right now, God, there are miracles that are surely to be had. God, even as we 
we stand together and, and uh, would you just stand with me right now as we pray? As we stand together and we prepare our hearts to listen to this music, as we prepare our hearts to respond to that little spark of faith you put in every one of us, God, we pray, God, that as we take of this bread and this cup and this communion, God, and we look at that bread and we think about this is the face of God. This is the presence of God. This is a reminder, God, of what you did for us at Calvary. That you bled and you died and you rose again to give us new life. And the opportunity of that new life, God, is that we get to carry out this kingdom assignment you've given us. I pray right now, God, that you'll touch every heart. Those with little faith, God, give them great faith. Those who've given up hope, God, give them hope. Father, those who don't know which way to turn, God, give them direction. God, I pray you'll take our faith, whatever it is, and God will multiply it by action. And God, as we begin to trust you and we say, God, we don't know how you're going to come through and put all the pieces together for this miracle campaign, but God, we're trusting you for it. We're believing you for it, for a miracle in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We're just going to ask you now as we take a few minutes just to worship here at the end and make your way to one of the tables that are in uh, the corners of the building. You just... Think about what God is doing and what God wants to do in your life and give him your faith, give him your trust. Let's sing together.